Okay, so welcome back to another podcast by the School of Surgery. Today we're going to be discussing capacity, the Mental Capacity Act, and how to assess capacity. My name is Ricky Ellis, an academic foundation trainee at the Royal Derby Hospital. And I'm joined today by Christine Taylor, specialist registrar currently working with the Mental Health Liaison Team at the Royal Derby Hospital also. So a thorough understanding of capacity, the Mental Capacity Act, and how to assess a patient's capacity to make a decision is essential as a clinician. We assess capacity on a daily basis, whether it's asking permission to take blood, to examine a patient, or to consent them for a procedure, to name but a few examples. The law gives us very clear guidance on how to do this, and what to do if someone does not have capacity to make a decision. Where a patient's capacity is called into question, it's really important to undertake a more formal assessment of capacity, and to document this clearly in the notes. Christine, we've all heard of the Mental Capacity Act. Would you mind telling us a bit more about it, please? So the Mental Capacity Act um, deals with whether a person over the age of 16 has the ability or capacity to make a specific decision on their own behalf. Um, You could also think of it as the Decision Making Act. Um, Capacity is decision and time specific, so for any assessment that's done it must take that into account. And a patient with capacity has the absolute right to make their own decisions and we must respect people's autonomy. Um, The Act is so important because it puts guidance into place for us to follow for people that don't have capacity um, in terms of best interest provisions. Um, And the ethos of the Mental Capacity Act is very much to try and encourage people to be involved um, in their care as much as possible. So there's a real onus on professionals to enhance people's capacity in any way possible. Um, And it's also extremely important because it's helping to protect those in our society who are, who are perhaps the most vulnerable and need the most support um, in their care. Okay, thank you. And what are the most so what are the potential negative implications of, of getting this wrong in our clinical practice? Well, obviously, obtaining um, informed consent is extremely important because without that, if we go ahead and act and do something to a patient, we could be accused of assault. And um, if a patient has a lack of capacity and we intervene, we must make sure that what we're doing is in their best interests. Um, We also have a duty of care to act. So if someone's unable to make a decision um, on their own behalf, we can't just leave things and not make a decision. We have to provide them with the care um, that's appropriate. So an omission of care could be just as serious as acting and that would constitute negligence. Um, and also as medical profession, professionals, we need to uh, protect ourselves from complaints. So it's really important that our decision-making processes are well thought out and, and well documented. And the Mental Capacity Act gives us a structure within which to do that. Okay, thank you. And how does the Mental Capacity Act define a person who lacks capacity? So the Mental Capacity Act would... Um, say that a person lacks capacity if they're unable to make a decision for themselves because of an impairment or disturbance in the functioning of their mind or brain. Um, And it doesn't matter if that impairment or disturbance is permanent or temporary. Okay, perfect. And we've all been taught as we're going through medical school about the five key principles of the Mental Capacity Act. Could you take us through these if that's okay? Sure. So the first thing, (coughs) excuse me, is that there's a presumption of capacity. So Um, every adult has the right to make his or own decisions and must be assumed to have capacity until proven otherwise and the onus is on the professional to to demonstrate if someone lacks capacity. 
Um, there's also the right for individuals to be supported and able to make their own decisions and people must be given all appropriate help and assistance before anybody concludes that they, that they lack capacity. Um, individuals retain the right to make what other people might consider unwise decisions and I'm sure everybody in their lifetime at some time or another makes what could be considered an unwise decision and this in and of itself is not, um, does not mean that the person lacks capacity. Um, anything that we do for people who lack capacity must be done in their best interests and we must always look for the least restrictive option that will meet their needs. So those are the five key principles. Brilliant, thank you. And as clinicians, we, as I discussed earlier, we're assessing capacity on a, a daily basis, but how are we supposed to formally assess capacity? Well, the Mental Capacity Act is very clear that we use something called the, the two-stage test. In the past, we might have determined whether someone had capacity based on the quality of their decision-making or um, a particular attribute that they might have. But as we've just said, people have the right to make unwise decisions and people with conditions such as dementia or learning disability can make many decisions for themselves. So those two methods of assessing capacity were not felt to be, um, to be good enough. So, as I say, we use the two-stage test, and this is a functional assessment. So, first of all, we look for whether there's an impairment or a disturbance in the functioning of the mind, so that's stage one. Um, this doesn't need to be a clear diagnosis, a description of their presentation will suffice, so it doesn't actually need to be a clear medical diagnosis as such, and it would cover a wide range of, of mental conditions. And then the second stage of the test is to consider whether the person is able to understand the relevant information, retain it, weigh it up and communicate it. And if any one of those four areas is impaired, then the person would be found to be lacking capacity. OK. And can we just clarify which e what each of those means, please? Yes, so in terms of understanding, the patient would need to understand and believe the information that they're being uh, provided with about the proposed intervention so the sorts of things that you might cover in your conversation with them is the nature and purpose of the proposed intervention what the risks and benefits of it might be what the risks and benefits of declining that intervention might be and whether there's any alternatives so of course we're not just referring to medical treatment we might be considering something such as making the decision about where to live or anything related to day-to-day -day care. Brilliant, thank you. And how uh, about the ability to retain information? Yes, yeah, so in terms of retaining, the person needs to retain the information for long enough to come to a decision. So um, people can have quite severe difficulties with their short-term memory, but if they're able to retain that information for long enough to come to a decision, then, then that is considered to be adequate. Perfect. And in terms of weighing up the decision? So with weighing up, they need to be able to use and weigh up the information that they've been provided with in order to come to a decision, and they need to be able to demonstrate how, how they've made that decision. And sometimes if you're speaking to someone and considering two different options, being able to use something called a balance sheet where they weigh up the pros and cons of each option can be a useful way of helping people to, to demonstrate their capacity. Okay, that's a really good idea. Thank you. And their ability to communicate as well. Yes, yeah, so communication could be any form of communication. You know, the most ob obvious one is a conversation and verbal communication, um, but communicating by sign language or, you know, in the case of someone who is paralysed, uh, using the movement of the eyes um, is another way of communicating. So it's not just verbal communication, it's any way that we can help the per person to communicate with us. 
Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. And it's important to remember that it's your duty to use every method possible to, to facilitate each of these processes whilst assessing a patient's capacity to make a decision. Have you got any tips for us to, to help our patients out in this process? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of things that you can do that can be really helpful. And a lot of them are, you know, very common sense approaches but when you're working in busy clinical environments sometimes we forget the obvious things so things like seeing someone in a quiet area making sure that they're comfortable um, addressing any sensory issues so have they got their glasses on have they got their hearing aid is it working Um, using simple language and repeating questions making sure that we're not rushing people considering whether there's a better time of day to see them Um, Another way that can be helpful is giving people the information in an alternative form. So you might talk it through them first and then you might provide them with some written information. Um, And something that I've found quite helpful is using people who are familiar to help aid the assessment. So the person might feel more comfortable with a member of family present um, or a particular member of staff that perhaps they've got a good rapport with. So using that as, as as a way of enhancing things as well. The other thing that's really important to consider is whether there's anything currently going on that can be addressed. For for example, if someone's acutely physically unwell, you know, can that be addressed before you need to do this capacity assessment? If they're constipated, can you treat it? If they're in pain, can you deal with that? And, And similarly with psychiatric conditions, if someone's depressed, could you treat the depression before doing your assessment, for example? Um, and if possible and recovery is likely, can it be delayed to a later point where they will be better able to participate? So all of those things need to be sort of considered. Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. So let's discuss when your patient has capacity to make a decision and they've made a decision that perhaps you weren't expecting. For example, they may have refused a certain intervention, for example. Obviously, then their decision cannot be overruled if they do definitely have capacity. The other things to consider if they've made this decision is uh, the fact that you need to keep reviewing capacity. It's a very fluid process. They can have capacity one day, potentially not the next. The other things to consider are what other care or treatment can you offer the patient to support them following this decision? Yes, so, you know, people are allowed to disagree with the proposed treatment, but it's important that that we still... um, fulfil our duty of care towards them um, and try and engage them and, and continue to work with them even if they've disagreed with what we've suggested. Brilliant, thank you. And let's talk about when you've assessed a patient's capacity to make a, a sp- specific decision that period of time and you deem that they lack capacity to make this decision. Now it's very important to remember that to undertake a formal capacity assessment and it's also very important to document this fully in the notes. It can't just be an informal assessment on the ward. Remember, you need to refer to these notes, potentially in the future, when reassessing capacity. Again, we'll reiterate, just because a patient makes a decision that you believe to be be unwise doesn't mean that they lack capacity, necessarily. Remember that capacity is time and decision-specific and that you must reassess capacity on a regular basis. Just because someone lacked capacity to decide whether to have surgery yesterday doesn't necessarily mean that they lack capacity today, and vice versa. Someone that lacks capacity to decide whether to have surgery doesn't mean that they lack capacity to decide where they live, for example. It's important to remember these facts when discussing options with the patient. 
Now let's discuss acting in a patient's best interests. If someone lacks capacity, and we've confirmed this with a formal capacity assessment which has been fully documented within the notes, you need to consider whether you're, you need to act within the patient's best interests. For example, in life-threatening situations, clinicians may have to act in the patient's best interests if they lack capacity to make the decision or is unable to give consent. So, Christine, say a person lacks capacity to make a decision, how would you approach this? Well, I suppose, as you say, the first thing to consider is whether this is an emergency situation and, and the law does allow us to, to act in people's best interests um, you know, without delay. And I think that's a useful thing uh, for professionals to, to be aware of. If there is more time to consider um, the way forward, then the best interests decision making comes into play. And the first step with that is to consider whether the person's going to regain capacity and whether the decision can be delayed. So does this particular decision need to be made at this point in time? If it can be delayed so that the person can participate more fully, then clearly that, that is what should happen. So the Mental Capacity Act gives us very clear guidance about how we think about best interests and they refer to something called the best interest checklist. So I'll just run through the things um, that are contained within that now. Um, the first thing is that we shouldn't make assumptions about someone's best interests merely based on um, the person's age or their appearance or their underlying condition. And what that is saying is that we should really be avoiding discrimination. Um, Secondly, we should try to identify the issues and circumstances relating to the decision that are most relevant for that person. Um, and that's relevant because for a different person making the same decision, different factors would have um, importance. So it's really thinking about for that individual, what are the things that matter to them? Anything we, should, we do should be the least restrictive possible option. And anything we do should be, um, decisions should be made in the person's best interests. Um, we should really be encouraging people to participate as much as possible. Even if somebody lacks capacity, they should still be um, engaged in discussions and in the decision making. Um, and we can try to find out what people's previous wishes and feelings are by speaking to the people that know them well and looking to see whether there's any relevant written statements that the person made when they had capacity. We should also give consideration to whether they've got any beliefs or values, which might be faith-based, cultural or moral, that would be likely to influence their decision-making if they did have capacity. And there's an onus on us as professionals to consult with other people where practicable um, and appropriate in, in light of the person's right to confidentiality. Um, the sorts of people that we might consult with are any family members that are involved in that person's care, any paid carers, um, any friends, anyone who's taken an interest in that person's welfare, which would also include um, <clears throat> a lasting power of attorney or a deputy appointed by the Court of Protection. So all of those people should be consulted. If people don't have any uh, family or, or carers or anyone that can help to support them, then there is a professional called an independent mental capacity advocate and we can refer for, for one of those to be allocated to that person and their role is to help support decision making. I think it's quite useful to consider um, something that I refer to as the capacity cascade and that's who, who should make um, decisions 
um, for a person. Now, obviously, if that person has capacity, they make the decision for themselves. But what do we do then if they don't have capacity? The first thing that we would look for is whether that person has put in place any measures prior to losing capacity. So that would be looking to see whether the person had made an advanced decision to refuse treatment. If they don't have that, then the next thing to look for would be whether anyone else has been given permission to act on their behalf. So that would be looking to see whether the person had put a lasting power of attorney in place whilst they had capacity. And the fourth thing would be to consider whether the court of protection are involved. Brilliant. Thank you. That's very helpful. I think it's important at this point to readdress record keeping. It's extremely important as we have to show that we follow due process throughout the whole of this uh, assessment. It's also a key area of scrutiny during CQC inspections and something we really need to improve our compliance on in this area across the board. Capacity assessments should be recorded in the patient's notes. The extent of the note will be proportionate to the significance of the decision. But things that you should consider including in the notes are what the decision was, when the assessment was done, and why the person uh, was felt to lack capacity. Refer to the two stages of the test, i.e. one, was there an impairment of the mind, and two, which part of the capacity assessment wasn't met. For example, understanding, retaining, using or weighing up information, and communicating this information. It's important to mention what steps were taken to help the person make the decision for themselves. Other things that should be recorded are what decision was made, if a decision was made in the patient's best interest, and also if restraint was used, why this was necessary to prevent harm, and why this is considered a reasonable and proportionate response. Make sure you take note of how the decision was reached, who was involved in the decision and who was consulted over it, and also set a date for a review. Remember, capacity is a fluid process and it changes, potentially from one day to the next. Now, I think it's important to address advanced decisions to refuse treatment. This is something that you'll come across in your daily working lives. And it's a, a very confusing topic, certainly for myself. Now, patients have the ability to refuse treatment in advance. The treatments they're deciding to refuse must all be named in the advanced decision. You may want to refuse treatment in some situations, but not others. In this case, you need to be clear about the circumstances in which you want to refuse this treatment. Patients have the ability to refuse life-sustaining treatment, something which you'll come across daily, for example, refusing attempts at CPR and refusing ventilation. Deciding to refuse a treatment is not the same as asking someone to end your life or to help you end your life. Euthanasia and assisted suicide are actually illegal under English law. Christine, would you mind explaining to us what makes an advanced decision to refuse treatment and how we know whether this advanced decision is valid? Okay, well, advanced decisions to refuse treatment can be verbal or written, um, but if they relate to uh, refusing life-sustaining treatment, then they must be written. Um, a written advanced directive must be signed by uh, yourself and also by a witness, and the guidance would suggest that ideally this shouldn't be a relative or anyone that might stand to benefit from your will or an attorney or under the lasting power of attorney provisions, so it should be someone that's relatively independent. Um, for an advanced decision to refuse treatment to be legally binding, it must be compliant with the ethos of the Mental Capacity Act, it must be valid, and I'll talk about what that means in a moment, and it must also apply specifically to the si clinical situation that's being considered. 
um, because as we've already said, advanced decisions to refuse treatment must specify the type of treatment that you're refusing and the specific circumstances under which you will refuse. So to be valid, um, you must be over the age of 18. And so advanced decisions to refuse treatment is one of the things within the Mental Capacity Act that don't apply to 16 to 18 year olds. You must have had the capacity to make, understand and communicate your decision when you made it. You must specify clearly the treatments that you wish to refuse and the circumstances in which, in which you wish to refuse them. It must be signed by you and a witness and you must have made this advanced decision of your own accord without any harassment from anyone else. And importantly, you mustn't have done or said anything after making the advanced decision to refuse treatment that would contradict the decision that you're making. So that's whilst you still have capacity. If you said to people that you changed their mind, then this you changed your mind, then this would call into question the validity of the decision. An advanced decision to refuse treatment continues to be valid um, even without review, but you should be regularly reviewing. Um, reviewing it in any case and it can be withdrawn at any point that the person still has capacity. Thank you, that's very helpful. And what can you not use an advanced decision to refuse treatment for? Well you can't refuse use it to refuse treatment at a time when you've still got capacity because clearly if you've got capacity you make the decision at, at that point yourself. Um, interestingly you can't refuse to be given basic essential care to keep you comfortable so things like being washed and bathed you can't refuse the offer of food and drink by mouth, but you can specify that you don't want to be fed artificially, for instance, by NG feeding or, or peg feeds. Um, you also can't use it to refuse the use of measures which are solely designed to keep you comfortable, um, for example, painkillers um, and things that might relieve pain but don't treat the underlying condition. Um, and you can't use it to demand specific treatment. If you've got preferences for treatments that you would want to be considered, then this is included in something called an advanced statement where you would set out the treatments that you would prefer to receive. It doesn't have the same legal um, weighting as an advanced decision to refuse treatment, but doctors should take um, an advanced statement into consideration where at all possible. Um, you also can't use an advanced decision to refuse treatment uh, to refuse treatment for a mental disorder in the event that you're detained under the Mental Health Act. Um, as if you are being treated under the Mental Health Act, this can overrule an advanced decision to refuse treatment. Although having said that, professionals would always try to um, follow people's wishes as closely as possible. Um, you also can't ask for anything in an advanced decision that might be against the law, such as asking for help with um, ending your life. That's fantastic. Thanks very much, Christine. That's been very helpful. So that brings us to the end of this podcast on capacity. To summarise, we've discussed the principles of the Mental Capacity Act, how to perform an assessment of capacity, and what to do when a patient lacks capacity to make a decision. For more information on this topic, we suggest that you read the Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice. It's a very accessible document which summarises all of the key areas. There's other guides such as a Practical Guide to the Mental Capacity Act 2005 by Graham and Cowley, or a Clinician's Brief Guide to the Mental Capacity Act by Brenda Lettow. We hope that you found this podcast very useful and informative. And thank you ever so much to Dr. Christine Taylor for joining me today. Please check out the School of Surgery for more educational podcasts.